Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Today marks 100 days since Hamas's attack on Israel, so we thought we'd do a special edition of FP Live. On October 7th, as we all now know, Hamas militants from Gaza swept past Israeli border defenses and attacked communities in southern Israel. More than 1,200 Israelis were killed. Hundreds of hostages were taken. Many are still being held. October 7th is considered to be the country's biggest intelligence failure ever. It has dramatically shaken Israeli's sense of security. The impact of this day was felt beyond Israel too. October 7th is the worst attack on any Jewish community since the Holocaust. The Israeli military response against Palestinians in Gaza also set off a wave of anti-Semitism around the world. Israel's ground campaign began three weeks later. And while the stated goal was to target Hamas leadership, the toll on civilians there has been immense. As of this taping, more than 23,000 Palestinians have died. Hundreds of thousands of others have been pushed from their homes and faced disease and starvation. The humanitarian crisis has stoked outrage throughout the Arab world and beyond. It has also prompted a petition to the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide. More than at any time since the start of the war, the possibility of a wider conflict seems very real. The Houthi rebels in Yemen have been attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea in solidarity with Palestinians, leading to supply chain disruptions around the world. And in response, an American-led strike on the Houthis recently will surely lead to retaliation. Meanwhile, a second front between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon is heating up. Here in Foreign Policy Live, we've sat down with experts on all sides of this conflict over the past three months. As the war appears to be entering a new phase, we thought it would be a good moment to revisit some of those conversations. That's what you'll hear in the next hour, excerpts from five interviews I conducted since the beginning of the war that still feel particularly relevant. As I listen back, I'm struck by a few themes that have emerged as we consider this next phase of the conflict. First, empathy. Even now, a hundred days on, I'm still taken aback by how sometimes different sides in this conflict seem to dehumanize the other. It is really important to fight that, to engage with the human suffering on both sides. If you can't do that, it's hard to even imagine a way out. Second, America's role. It is clear that without the United States, Israel would be quite defenseless in what is, in fact, a region hostile to it. But Washington is facing more flack than ever before for supporting Israel. The criticism comes not just from Muslim countries, but from allies and even from within. 
Younger Americans feel differently about this conflict than do their parents. This will soon inevitably impact U.S. policy as well. It always does. Third, the peace process. The more you dig and the more people you speak to, you realize that the status quo in Gaza and the West Bank was untenable. Israeli politics was untenable too. We need great leadership on both sides to bring about real change. The question is whether that is politically feasible and whether people on both sides will have enough empathy and care to stop and consider what they are willing to give up for a better future. Enough of me speaking. A lot of what I know comes from speaking to real players on both sides, historians, academics, negotiators. And I want to bring snapshots of their takes in this episode. You'll hear from Ehud Barak, the former Prime Minister of Israel and the country's most decorated soldier. From Rashid Khalidi, a Palestinian-American academic who still has family in the Palestinian territories. From General David Petraeus, who managed two of America's wars and knows a thing or two about lessons from 9-11. Lessons that Israel would do well to learn. You'll hear from Beirut-based journalist Kim Gattas, and Middle East analyst Stephen Cook on how this will shape the region. And from Aaron David Miller, one of America's most storied Middle East diplomats, who somehow remains more hopeful than seems possible. Let's begin with Ehud Barak. When we taped in late October, he was already considering what should happen the day after the war. We do not intend to stay there uh, for the next 10 or 20 years. So to whom can we pass the torch and how we can participate in creating this entity that will take it from us. Mm. But let me ask you uh, about the question of international law then. The situation in Gaza is dire. Many thousands have died, as I said. Many of them are civilians and innocent. Why can't Israel fight Hamas without killing so many Palestinian civilians? Can you explain that? First of all, as I mentioned, we are committed to international law. We are trying our best to uh, minimize the what's called collateral damage, but actually the innocent people who have nothing to do with The On the causal chain, uh, Hamas is responsible for both the slaughtering of 7th of October in Israel and to the risk to human life of Gazans now. They remain not because they don't want to live. They want to live, but they are not allowed to live. So in a handgun point to do the temple, the Hamas impose upon them to stay in order to become human shields. So they're responsible on both sides of this equation. Of course, we do not uh, use the fact that they're responsible to kill as much as, as we can, the opposite. But we cannot give impunity to these uh, Qaeda or, or Daesh-like murderers, barbarian uh, murderers. Uh, just because they can use their own people in order to protect them. Now, you've said on the record, I think, to the New York Times, that while you do support the equivalent of a ground invasion, you do admit that Hamas's ideology can't be eradicated. And to me, this seems like a little bit of a contradiction, because if Hamas and its ideology can't be eradicated, what is the point of what Israel is trying to do in Gaza right now. Think of any kind of uh, free world uh, democracy. Think of the United States. The United States will do whatever it takes. I remember sending uh, forces over half of the globe to deal with 
Al-Qaeda or Daesh, they will do anything. They will not ask any question about neither proportionality or anything else. We are doing our best. We are very cautiously in this arena. Now, we know that unlike Daesh or ISIS, who were pariah even within the Muslim world, they slaughtered many more Muslims than Jews, Christians, or Yazidis, or whatever. Here we are dealing with a barbarian massacre that was carried out by people who belong to a political movement. The movement will remain, and the infrastructure, the people who perpetrate it, everything is the target, will destroy it, will make it impossible to run the Gaza Strip. And there is a question, as I mentioned earlier, to whom to pass it, something that should be taken care of. You know, the details are fuzzy on on how Israel can destroy Hamas's capabilities. But let's say that that is even possible. From what you can surmise, is there a plan for what happens the day after? What happens to Gaza? I'm confident that uh, our war cabinet and the Americans and probably some other capitals in the region, there are contacts about what to do. You know, I can tell you from my experience, uh, some 15 years ago, I was Minister of Defense, and we had even the rounds, kind of every two years or so, there was a round of clash with the Hamas in Gaza Strip. It usually ended with certain understandings mediated by Egypt and produced calmness for another twist. So on the way to one of them, I approached uh, Mubarak and proposed the following. Why don't uh, we, next time that we come, we'll try to crash Hamas, Hamas fully. It was easier 15 years ago than now. And uh, you will demand from day one that we will uh, push pull out. And after, let's say, six weeks or two months, we will agree with one condition, that you will uh, bring someone to take it from us. You know it from advance, so you prepare a multinational Arab force with some uh, Moroccans, uh, Omanis, uh, Bahrainis, whatever, uh, soldiers. And of course, Egyptian, you take it from us for limited period, let's say three or six months, you do it, you will bring back the original owner of the place, which is the Palestinian Authority, to remind your viewers, originally under the Oslo Agreement, the, the Gaza Strip was given to the Palestinian Authority, which is recognized by the world, by the UN Security Council as the legitimate owner of the place. They were pushed out of power through a violent coup d'etat by the Hamas years later. So. Uh, he told me, uh, Barak, no, 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 no. You conquered the Gaza Strip in 67 and uh, it's now yours, it's not mine. I will never ever put my hand back into it. I approached even Abu Mazen and to, to cut a long story short, his position was, I cannot afford coming back to power in Gaza sitting on Israeli bayonets. I didn't like the answer, but I understood the Palestinian logic behind it. Mm. You know, much has been said about the failure of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's successive governments to neglect the security of the southern communities, but also all of this while bolstering Hamas, knowing full well that Qatar was funding their efforts. And in effect, uh, many critics will argue that Israel, in fact, helped Hamas partly to weaken the Palestinian Authority. How do you reflect back at those policies over the last a decade or so, but specifically uh, under Prime Minister Netanyahu? It became an issue much more clear in the last five years. 
where even explicitly you could hear uh, Netanyahu says that uh, basically one of his uh, extreme right minister uh, made it a more concise decision. He said Hamas is an asset, the Palestinian Authority is a liability, rather than the other way around. Netanyahu pushed policy for the last at least five years, probably even more, where he said, basically, we need, if we want to block effectively any possibility of moving toward two-state solution, which he hates for some reasons, we have to strengthen Hamas and to weaken the Palestinian Authority. And he was doing it by yielding to Hamas demands and keeping them alive and kicking under kind of a hopefully low profile, but, but under their judgment and paying them protection money through the Qataris. And that was Ehud Barak, the former Prime Minister of Israel, who also served in many other positions over the years, including the head of the Israeli military. Next, we'll hear from Rashid Khalidi. He's a professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University. He is also the author, most recently, of the Hundred Years' War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance. Khalidi served briefly as an advisor to Palestinian peace negotiators in the 1990s. This interview is from December. I asked Khalidi what grade he would give the Biden administration for the way it has dealt with the war. I give them an F. Uh, they have not succeeded in my view yet. They may in the next round in mitigating the enormous damage to civilian life and property. But up to this point, I, I think they're guilty of war crimes, frankly. The, the Biden administration, every single one of them at the top. At the outset of this war, the president sent Secretary Blinken to convey to the Egyptians and the Jordanians a request that they allow Palestinians to be expelled into their territory. That is disgraceful. That is American direct American participation in the ethnic cleansing of part of Palestine, historic Palestine. They immediately pulled back on that. But I think that's one of the most disgraceful chapters in American diplomacy, that the United States for the first time in its history should be willing to participate in forcing Palestinians out of Palestine. Everybody knows that when Israel kicks Palestinians out of Palestine, they're never allowed to return. So I'd like to take us back to October 7 as we begin this discussion. And I know it didn't happen in a vacuum, but it's why we're here today. And the attacks of that day were just horrific. I'm curious what your initial reaction was when you learned about what happened that day and whether you were surprised by Hamas's ability to conduct this attack and catch Israel so off guard. I was surprised. Uh, I think everybody was surprised. I would guess that even Hamas's leaders who planned this might have been surprised by the extent of their success, by the collapse of Israeli defenses. I had been in Palestine in, I guess, March, and I could tell, everybody who was with us could tell uh, that the things were on, on the, at a boiling point and that there was likely to be an explosion. The situation was completely untenable. The pressure on the Palestinians, I wasn't able to go to Gaza, but I was in the West Bank. I was in different parts of Israel. The pressure on the Palestinians was so intense that it was clear that something had to give. I, I certainly didn't expect this, however. Mm. And then we had the Israeli response, which has now killed many, many thousands in Gaza. It's destroyed much of the Strip, and it's seen by many as a disproportionate response. 
But Hamas must have known that Israel's response would be harsh and that the Palestinian people, the people it's meant to represent and care for, would suffer tremendously as a result of its attack on October 7. So do you think Hamas's acts have harmed the Palestinian cause? Does it set back the work of all of the people who demand a Palestinian state but oppose Hamas? Well, there's no question that what Israel has done was entirely disproportionate. One can say that on the basis of statements by the Israelis themselves, by the Israeli generals, by the Israeli ministers who are waging this war. They have explicitly said that they would act in a disproportionate fashion. There's a terrifying article on Plus 972, an Israeli website, which talks about the targeting, uh, which is intentionally disproportionate. So that's the case. As to what Hamas expected, I have no idea. I mean, I have no insight into the minds of the people who planned this. Obviously, none of us do. If, in fact, as some people have said, some Israeli and some other analysts have suggested, this was a success far beyond the expectations of the people who planned it. If, in other words, the Israeli defenses collapsed more rapidly and more completely than they were expecting, then uh, it's impossible to say what they expected in terms of response. But I personally think any leader who launched an attack of this sort must have known that Israel's response would be ferocious and would be directed primarily at civilians and infrastructure. So if we assume then, as you're saying, and, and again, uh, it's very hard to get inside the, the heads of people who would plan something like October 7, but assuming that they had a sense that this would be the response, it's the stated uh, uh, Dahya, as you say, uh, um, that it, the response would be disproportionate. Given that that's the case, does all of this set back the work of all the people who demand a Palestinian state but but oppose Hamas? You know, I, I, I have to say, I have very little time for people who demand a Palestinian state over the past 20 odd years, who don't say we have to end occupation, we have to remove settlements, we have to guarantee sovereignty, we have to guarantee control over borders. People who have not said the word occupation in the U.S. administrations of the last several last couple of decades, people who have not talked about rolling back settlement, not just stopping it have no authority to talk about a two-state solution. You can't have a two-state solution where you don't end occupation and where you don't uh, uh, stop Israel from taking over more than the 60% of the West Bank it already controls. I mean, it's unrealistic to say, oh, those poor people talking about a two-state solution, this has harmed them. They were nowhere. There have been no negotiations for the better part of two decades. So a two-state solution is basically a chimera a little uh, something dangled in front of the minds of gullible uh, listeners uh, to conceal the fact that the United States and the international community are perfectly indifferent to the fact that Israel has made a two-state solution impossible for 56 years. So uh, Hamas did not destroy anything that existed. It may have destroyed other things. I mean, it, it, I think it, in, in some ways it's harmed um, the image of the Palestinians internationally, though there is an international flood of support for Palestinian rights generally, which in many cases acknowledges that what Hamas did was awful in terms of attacks or what was done to civilians by Hamas and others was awful in terms of, of, of atrocities against civilians, but who still feel not only that Israel's response is disproportionate, but that what has happened is a result of 56 years of occupation, of 75 years 
of mm. dispossession and did not start on October 7th. I think that's the way most of the world looks at this. I think that's mm. the way most American citizens actually are beginning to look at this. Leave aside our, our, our sclerotic, uh, aged uh, uh, political leadership mm. in this country. How do you think Palestinians are thinking about Hamas in this moment? Because, you know, they've clearly, as you say, changed the equilibrium of the conflict as it stands. But at the same time, I imagine Palestinians must be blaming them for bringing this current round of violence on its own people. I'm sure there are many Palestinians, especially in Gaza, who feel that way. But I seriously doubt that any of them uh, are going to say anything about it. And not only because they're afraid, but because they're so livid and furious at the atrocities and the barbarities that Israel has been committing daily in bombing civilians. These are attacks. I mean, you only have to read articles from the Israeli press to realize that they know what they're doing. They know they're killing 100 civilians or 50 civilians for every alleged target that they're supposedly attacking. And then many in many cases, the, ta the targets they're attacking have nothing to do with Hamas in real terms, certainly nothing to do with it. Hamas's attacks on Israel. But, you know, Israel would immediately then say that, that Hamas is using civilians as so-called human shields, operating from areas where it's more likely that civil, civilian casualties could be much higher. And I'm curious how, you know, the Palestinians react to that sense of being essentially, as you point out, you know, I mean, there hasn't been movement in this conflict for so long. Um, and then they get sucked into violence uh, that is essentially, you know, this cycle. Well, as I've said, I think that many people in Gaza probably resent what you just pointed out, that in fact, uh, Palestinian civilians are being punished uh, for the, the actions of Hamas. But on the other hand, most Palestinians seeing the destruction by the United States and Israel of any prospect for a peaceful two-state solution, given that, the, the alternative, which is Hamas and resistance and so on and so forth, have grown in stature, not because people support them. You look at the public opinion polls before October mm. 7th, they do not have majority support among Palestinians. But there is no alternative. And there's not an alternative only because the Palestinian Authority is corrupt or only because the Palestinian political arena is divided. There's no alternative because the United States and Israel have basically stonewalled any possibility of negotiations towards a viable sovereign Palestinian state for decades. So, you know, they see, well, nobody had an alternative. And I, I'm sure many people really regret that Hamas launched this. I mean, people who've lost their livelihoods, people who've lost their homes in Gaza uh, must be angry about this. But I will tell you that across Palestinian society, at the same time, they don't see that they're being allowed an alternative. And they are not being allowed an alternative. What is being offered to the Palestinians? What has been offered to the Palestinians? The so-called generous offers which were made in the 1990s by Rabin or, or in 2000 by Barak or later on by Olmert, have to be examined. I mean, instead of taking that nonsense propaganda line, read what was offered. Israeli control of borders, Israeli control of security, essentially a non-viable Palestinian state because settlements were not going to be removed in most cases. So what, what are we talking about? We're talking about non-offers, in fact, not generous offers. And then two decades of nothing at all. So I've argued in many things I've published against this specific kind of occupation, against this specific kind of settler colonial dispossession. Uh, 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 armed resistance is not the way to go. Nevertheless, when people say there's absolutely no alternative because you have stonewalled 
at least for two decades, any possibility of anything else. And you, the Israeli government, has assiduously helped to divide the Palestinians and keep them separate. I mean, the, the, mm. the, the debate in Israel is about how much Netanyahu supported the Hamas government in, in, in the Gaza Strip. So given that background, th mm. there is support for Hamas now, probably greater than there was on October 6th. Mm. You know, I'll just point out, um, uh, and we can debate this a little bit more, but there are many pro-Israel voices, for example, who say that Palestinians never fail to miss an opportunity from, you know, right from the 1947 partition plan to Arafat in the Clinton years to Abbas and Olmert. Right. Um, but I, I get that you think they're wrong. Why? The partition plan would have given a country that the Palestinians considered their own. All of it. They were the overwhelming majority. They owned 96% of the land would have given most of it to a Jewish minority. Palestinians could not accept that. They saw this as their homeland. They believed that by the covenant of the League of Nations and by the UN Charter, they were entitled to self-determination as a people. The partition plan would have given most of their country, most of the arable land to a one-third minority. I'm not sure any people would accept a, 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 an offer of that sort. They rejected it. Would they have been better off if they'd accepted it? I don't think that the war would have been prevented. I think that there would have been uh, much the same result that you had now. But anyway, that's a mighty bit of history. As far as the so-called generous offers, I've already spoken to that. I was involved in negotiations in Madrid and Washington. We were not made a generous offer. We were told that in five years, nothing that you've said would be accepted necessarily, but we would discuss it. And that discussion never really took place until Camp David. And at Camp David in 2000, I was not there, but I, I can tell you that what Barak was offering was not a sovereign, viable, contiguous Palestinian state with control over its own borders, nor was Rabin. Rabin said it explicitly in his last Knesset speech in 1975 before he was assassinated. He said it will be less than a state and we will control the borders. Well, that's not a state. That's a Bantustan. That's an autonomous area under Israeli sovereignty. And that's essentially all that any of these three prime ministers, who went much farther than any other Israeli leader, I'm talking about Olmert, uh, Barak, and Rabin, that's the farthest that they were willing to go. Now, should the Palestinians have accepted those things uh, and accept permanent subordination to Israel in their own homeland? You can ask that question to anybody, and you'll see what they say. Um, I want yes. to try and move to the future. And so... Let me ask you this. Can anything good come out of this? In other words, do you have any hope that the wider world's realization that the status quo before October 7 was untenable and won't keep Israelis or Palestinians safe, do you have any hope that that could lead to a realization of what was happening so far and how it didn't work and that that could lead to a serious diplomatic push for a two-state solution or for a Palestinian state? I'm going to give you the glass half full and the glass half empty. I mean, the glass is half full in the sense that there's been a shift globally and in the Arab world in the direction and among Americans, most Americans. I mean, three quarters of Democrats want a ceasefire. That's a shift. And there are many other aspects of it. Uh, there's been a shift globally and in the United States and in the Arab world towards seeing that the situation before October 7th was unsustainable and there has to be a change. And so that might be a positive factor. And I can see a willingness to address issues that have never been addressed before, root causes. I don't mean the slapping of band-aids on a separating wound. I mean addressing root causes, occupation, settlement, and so, and so on and so forth. The glass half empty argument would proceed from, I could add one other positive, 
potential positive, which is Palestinians may be shaken and Israelis may be shaken. Traumatic events sometimes change people's sense of identity, change people's people's views of what's possible. You look at World War I in the Middle East. People just changed overnight. They were forced to change. And Israel changed after the 73 war. Israel changed after the first intifada. Uh, Palestinians changed uh, after the Madrid and Oslo negotiations. So that could be a positive. Right now, the change doesn't seem to be in that direction. Israelis seem to be understandably traumatized, enraged, and the Israeli military is on hell-bent on, on making up for its humiliating defeat on the 7th of, of, of October. But good may come out of this in terms of both peoples. The glass-half-empty argument for no change has to do with the Palestinian situation, the Israeli situation, and the American situation. I just described why there's paralysis in American politics. On the one hand, the president and, and, and the political leadership of our country are almost blind to the Palestinians. They don't see the Palestinians, nor the democratic leadership, nor the Republican leadership, nor most, most of the foreign policy establishment. They talk as if the Palestinians don't exist and they can be thrown whatever scraps uh, might, the Israelis might deign to, to give them. I don't see that changing quickly, though it is changing at the base. There is a change ongoing in American public opinion. It may take many years, before it manifests itself at the political level. It took years for the Vietnam War to become unpopular and further years for that change to reach the top. Same was true with the Iraq War. This may be true with this. As far as Palestine is concerned, the Palestinians suffer from a divided leadership, a lack of a unified strategy. I mean, where are they going? What do they want? Under the PLO, it was clear. They wanted a two-state solution. They were never offered that, but at least we knew what they wanted. Okay, Rabin was, to his credit, honest. I'm going to give them less than a state, but he was willing to give them more than any Israeli leader before him had, had been willing to, to offer. We don't have on the Palestinian side a unified leadership or a unified national movement or a clear strategy. And that's an enormous disability in terms of any progress towards any change. On the Israeli side, the movement has been to the right and further to the right from being ashamed to talk about kicking Palestinians out, to having people who want to kick Palestinians out in senior ministries in the Israeli government. Now that could change. So could the situation among the Palestinians. But right now, that's not the direction things are going in Israel, partly as a result of the shock of October 7th. I mean, I didn't, I didn't mention this, but the, the trauma, not just in Israel, also in Jewish communities across the world, is something that, ha that is beyond the scale of this event, but the scale of this event itself is quite significant. More Israeli civilians were killed in this war than in any Israeli-Arab war, going right back to 1948. Now that's gonna have a, a psychological effect. And then you add that to previous traumas and so on and so forth. And it's clear that I'm not talking about the military and the government, I'm talking about public opinion, ordinary people, that that is going to lead to all kinds of possible changes in Israeli politics, which may turn out positively. I mean, if you see what the families of the hostages are saying, they seem to be the only people in Israel who are speaking realistically. Let's save these people and let's cut a deal. Many of them, at least, are saying that. Um, I don't know how that will develop. I'm not an expert on Israel. And I'm not, I'm not in Palestine. I can't tell you how things are going. People now are enraged at what Israel is doing. And many of them have become more supportive of Hamas since this began. I, I insist you go back and look at the polls before October 7th. Hamas was not very popular. 
and it is probably more popular. Will that change over time as the devastation in Gaza sinks in? I, I don't know. I can't, I can't say. And that was Rashid Khalidi from my interview with him in December. Khalidi is a professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Israel-Hamas War 100 Days Later. You're listening to several interviews I conducted over the past three months with people who have both experience and expertise on Israel and Palestine. We're re-airing excerpts as the war in Gaza reaches a grim milestone, 100 days since the start of the fighting. Before October 7th, Israel had been developing new ties with countries across the Arab world, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Morocco, to name a few. But it is now unclear how these new diplomatic ties will be impacted by the violence. I spoke to two experts on this in early November, Kim Katas, a journalist based in Beirut, and Stephen Cook, a Middle East analyst at the Council for Foreign Relations and an FP columnist. We began by discussing the chances that the war would extend to Lebanon and elsewhere. Beirut is very tense. Lebanon as a whole is very tense. Uh, because this country has been through many conflicts in the past, including one uh, devastating one, not only its civil war, but of course also wars between Hezbollah and and Israel, uh, including the last one in 2006, which was devastating for Lebanon, 1,200 civilians dead, a lot of damage done to the civilian infrastructure. And there's a sort of hysterical psychosis almost in the country. We feel like we're living in a twilight zone. We're not sure, are we going to have war or not? A lot of people have left the country. A lot of people have left their villages in southern Lebanon. And in the midst of that, you actually have an active front, although a contained one, uh, between Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and Israel in the north or Israel's Northern Front, and it's been ongoing. And it seems like this is the extent of what the two sides want to stick to at the moment. Um, And my read is that this is because Hezbollah has many reasons to show that it is there supporting Hamas, but many reasons to make sure that this does not become a full-on, full-blown war, including Um, because it doesn't suit Iran. I've heard from many uh, officials, Arab officials, Western diplomats, that Iran is looking to de-escalate. They'd like to contain this because first and foremost on their mind is the survival of the Iranian regime and a full-on regional war is just not something that is going to to help them. And I'm sure we can go into further details about that. I often think it's useful to examine what each party has to gain from where things are headed and therefore try and think about what they want out of the next few weeks. And just spending a bit more time on Iran here, what are they seeking to get out of where this is headed? And and if we can piece that together, what should we expect from Tehran? Mm. You know, that is the key question, actually. But I think that for Iran and for Hezbollah, um, the key is to preserve Hezbollah as a key line of defense for Iran, should Iran come under threat. And I think they they will explain away whatever might happen in Gaza for quite a long time. I think I might be wrong. Uh, you know, we're trying to predict the future in what is uncharted territory. Uh, I think they have a high threshold of how much could go wrong in Gaza before they feel they need to get more involved. Because the utmost uh, priority 
for Iran and therefore for Hezbollah, because at this point, I think they're almost equal partners. They're no longer a proxy. Hezbollah is no longer a proxy. Um, Iran's priority is the survival of the regime and the survival of Hezbollah as a key line of defense. I mean, they view Lebanon as a forward defense base for the Iranian regime. And they don't want to be in a situation where they waste that card um, for, I'm sorry to say, for the Palestinians. Um, you know, I wrote a piece two years ago when there was a war between Gaza, between Hamas and Israel, saying no one is coming to help the Palestinians. And in a way, I think that peace still holds today, very sadly. And you've, you're hearing some anger uh, from Egyptian uh, journalists who are saying, you know, what, what did Hamas expect? And all these tunnels that they built, couldn't they have built shelters for the people if they knew that this is what was going to come out of their um, horrific attack on, on Israel. So I think this is really showing us some of the divisions now within what is called the axis of resistance. Because the longer it takes, the longer everyone's threshold and their, their ability to explain away why they haven't done X or Y becomes harder. And of course, the more likely it is that mistakes happen, there's a misfire and you're you just cross that red line. Uh, but I think it's also important to point out a few things that have caught my attention. Um, one of them is an interview that the Lebanese prime minister gave to The Economist, in which he suggested that peace was possible, that we had to look for uh, ways for a ceasefire, humanitarian aid. I'm, I'm not sure if he mentioned the Israeli hostages, because I think that's essential as part of any sort of short term uh, a pause or ceasefire. But then he talks about going back to the two-state solution and bringing Iran into a peace conference. I think that that is messaging sent through the Lebanese prime minister by those he has met recently. And who might that be? The Iranian foreign minister, mm. among others. So I think it's important to look for those signals amidst the fog of war. I've heard that from other Lebanese officials who are closely aligned to Hezbollah's thinking. And I was surprised that instead of frothing at the mouth about the injustice of Israel's reaction and the injustice of the US uh, um, inability to call for a ceasefire to, to protect civilians, they were talking to me about a two-state solution. I, I was really taken aback by that. Mm. Stephen, uh, part of this discussion so far is about the chances of escalation based on what other countries in the region are thinking at this point of time. But it occurs to me, what about Israel here? So Israel may also see it in its interest to escalate. Um, and for example, um, if you assume that there could be several years now of armed conflict between Israel and Hamas and Iranian-backed uh, armed militias in the West Bank, tit-for-tat clashes with Hezbollah, is it in Israel's interest then to hit Hezbollah before Iran becomes nuclear? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts there. And I think it's a I think it's an excellent question. Um, first of all, let me just say it's my view, Iran is already nuclear capable state. So this is not something that is going to deter the, the Israelis. I think in private, Israeli officials would probably tell you that that's what they believe, but that publicly they couldn't possibly say that. I, I, I think what you're getting from the Israelis is the idea that there needs to be an entirely new security paradigm for Israel. Um, and right now, the immediate 
issue is the Gaza Strip. They have said in, unless they uh, defeat Hamas and make it impossible for Hamas to uh, threaten Israel, it would essentially cut off half of the half of the country that people would not be able to live in, in southern Israel. And that is why they are doing it. And that's why they will prosecute this war, uh, regardless of international pressure until they until their goals are met. Without a lot of deep thinking about what comes next, I think that they don't really take very seriously some of the ideas that are coming out of Washington right now about an international force or a UN mandate for Gaza, things that you know are just the, the, the subject, and I agree with this, of Washington fantasies. But when they talk about a new security paradigm, it makes me wonder that once Gaza is complete, what is next? Will they continue to want to live in this kind of wild and wary deterrence with Hezbollah? I certainly don't think that they're going to take very seriously. I, I, it's absolutely the case that Hezbollah and that Iran are sending these signals that Kim is picking up on. I don't get the sense that, it, in, at least in, in Israel, number one, and at least half of Washington will take those very seriously. It, it would be seen as trying to take the pressure off of Tehran and Hezbollah. So the Israelis strike me as um, not willing, one, to take advice about this, nor are they willing to see in uh, messages that might or might not be sent from Hezbollah some sort of opportunity for a two-state solution, especially since there is no camp in Israel any longer for it. If it was, If there was no peace camp on October 6th, it was essentially the attacks on October 7th just buried it deeper, uh, deeper in Israel. But but yes, I think the question is a good one. I think that the Israelis, if there is a, a real change here in, in Israel, it is about how to pursue their security and that establishing deterrence with these groups may not work. And that may portend going on the offensive. Mm. Stephen, as we continue to sort of take a step back on this, um, you've written uh, several pieces, but a couple of them took in the roles that Qatar and Saudi Arabia are playing. And of those two, Qatar clearly is the more significant one. Uh, this is a country that sees itself as sort of the Switzerland of the Middle East that is able to talk to all sides. Uh, Hamas's leader, of course, lives in Doha. Uh, Qatar has been sending aid money to Gaza for quite a while. But crucially here, Qatar is involved as the key sort of go-between in negotiations to potentially free the Israeli hostages that Hamas and some other groups are holding on to, uh, we assume, in Gaza. Talk to us a little bit about Qatar's role in this process and how that plays into the broader thinking about where this is all headed. Yeah, I think, you know, look, it is important to recognize that the Qataris are deeply involved in trying to negotiate the release of these hostages. Um, so they're clearly playing an important and constructive role. And, you know, prior to this, the Israelis would say, we want the Qataris in Gaza, because if it's not the Qataris, who is it going to be? And we certainly, it might be the Turks, and we don't trust the Turks. Um, but at the same time, there is a sense that the Qataris are both arsonist and firefighter here by the way in which, and I wrote about this, by the way in which, you know, Hamas has set up shop in, in Doha uh, with, with very, very little restrictions. I, I think there is an understanding that this is useful for the United States as well as the Israelis to be able to communicate uh, with Hamas. But after October 7th, I think that there is um, a desire to, at least in Washington, um, to 
review and understand a little bit better what the Qatari relationship is with with Hamas. After all, the Qataris were the ones who were supposed to be kind of administering the funds in Gaza for those who were in need. Yet, while they were doing this, Hamas was building out this massive tunnel network and infrastructure that has now been used to devastating effect in this war. So it is a problem I think that Washington is going to have to confront and that Israel is going to have to confront. The problem is, is that there's really no consensus on it. And there's all kinds of ideas that are floating around the Washington ecosystem as well as Capitol Hill about uh, sanctioning Qatar, designating Qatar as a state sponsor of terrorism, preventing Qatar Airways from flying to the United States, all these kinds of things over its relationship with Hamas. It is a much, much more complicated one and more difficult for the United States, especially since the Qataris have been important allies, whether it was the withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan, whether it's Al-Udaid uh, Air Base, which is the forward operating base for U.S. Central Command for all of its activities in the Middle East, including containing, uh, containing the Iranians, uh, along with another string of bases. But that's the place from where all of this, this happens. So it's it, the United States is in this position where it cannot and does not want to kind of penalize the the Qatar is for their relationship with Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Taliban, and want it and want to use it. But increasingly, there are voices here and elsewhere that this is an untenable situation. Continuing our tour around the Middle East now, Kim, I want to talk about Egypt and uh, Egypt's president uh, Al Sisi. You know, like many of his predecessors, he's quite hostile to Hamas, which is affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood movement. I'm curious how much leverage Egypt has uh, in mediating anything in the coming weeks. And of course, it also shares a border with Gaza and Israel. What does Cairo want here? I think first and foremost, Cairo wants to make sure there are not 2 million uh, Palestinians who cross the border into, into Egypt, which is an idea that has been floating around um, and which is quite um, dangerous uh, mm -hmm. in a way. I think for several reasons, those who put this idea forward, including Western diplomats, I think don't realize the extent of the problem uh, they would be creating. Uh, and Abdel Fattah Sisi has, has made very clear that this is simply not an option. And one of the reasons is that they would be mostly in the Sinai, let's say. And how can you guarantee that you've really quote-unquote, gotten rid of all the Hamas elements, Hamas militants within them. Uh, you know, Abdel Fattah Hassisi doesn't necessarily control a lot of, properly control a lot of these areas in the Sinai. He certainly doesn't want to see this becoming a staging ground for attacks against Israel. And my understanding is that beyond flippantly telling the Europeans, you think we should take in one million refugees, you take them. Um, He's also, in my understanding, made it very clear to the United States that it would be for him almost a declaration of war. Uh, the Egyptians are really concerned about this prospect. And I think that that also, in a way, is a deep concern for the Jordanians. Um, as tension mounts on the West Bank, and we hear Israeli officials or Israeli settlers making, you know, rather vitriolic statements about what their vision is for the West Bank. There is also deep concern in Jordan that there could be a push 
to expel Palestinians into Jordan. And you hear uh, people in the region talk about how some of these actions, movements, ideas could, in their words, break up countries in the region. It, it could really, you know, if we want to go down the disaster route, uh, you know, from co military conflagration and escalation to real demographic pressure, political pressure, domestic pressure on countries like Jordan and, and Egypt, this is really a, a tinderbox. And I think that that's why you do hear a lot of voices in the region. And it's not just, you know, the signals being sent by people who are close to the Iranians. There is a lot of talk about the need to return to something resembling peace talks. And everybody's very realistic. This is not for tomorrow. This is not for next month. This is maybe not for another six months. But at some point, um, the Saudis themselves have said, you know, we are still ready for normalization talks. They're very worried about the widespread tension, the potential for years of conflict and um, you know, skirmishes and, and more violence. And so it's interesting to hear the Saudis saying openly, we are still looking to consider normalization talks between Israel and, and the kingdom, but it will require a much bigger substantial package when it comes to the actual Palestinians and, and the potential for a political horizon for them. If the Saudis were willing to throw the Palestinians under the bus before and say, you know, here's a few little cosmetic changes on the ground, we'll promise no annexation, we'll give you some money, that's not going to cut it um, anymore after what's happened. Because I think the Saudis, although they've not put an end neither to uh, uh, the rapprochement with, with Iran, nor have they formally suspended normalization talks with the Israelis. It's just de facto not a conversation at the moment. But they've, interestingly enough, not suspended the rapprochement with, with Iran. Quite the contrary. They're, you know, uh, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Because at the beginning of this tragedy that we're watching unfold, it was very noticeable that Ismail Haniye from Hamas said that this was also a message to Arab countries. Israel cannot protect you. Kim, uh, as we continue to sort of zoom out on this, um, you were a longtime diplomatic correspondent in D.C. You followed the State Department's moves for many years. What is your sense of what America has to gain and lose uh, in the coming weeks as civilian casualties in Gaza continue to rise? There's a lot riding, I think, for President Biden um, on this. Is he going to go into an election year with a simmering conflict um, in the Middle East, you know, violence uh, on the West Bank, an unfinished um, war in, in Gaza, uh, refugees being pushed into uh, Egypt or Jordan, um, more violence on the border between Lebanon and, and Israel? Is he going to go into an election year with, you know, a return to some kind of status quo as uh, as Stephen was describing, but, you know, where we're all you know, in a worse situation than before because, you know, we're counting our, our dead on both sides? Um, or is he going into, uh, and, and, and the consequences or the, Im the impact of... Um, of uh, of those first two scenarios is how that plays out with with the American public, of course, uh, in the U.S. All, all of this, 
And I understand that, you know, foreign policy isn't the priority for people when they go to the to the polls in the US necessarily. But this seems to be playing out in a, in a big way for many people um, in the US, uh, the Jewish community, the Arab American community. Um, and then you have the third scenario, which, you know, I, I don't want to sound, you know, uh, naive, but but maybe it's almost wishful thinking because I don't want to. Uh, and I'm sitting for now in the safety of, Be of Beirut, we cannot go through another war. You know, we are all traumatized in this region by the various conflicts that we've lived through. We all have layers of trauma. So I try to stay very realistic and as detached as possible in my analysis, but always throughout my work, my writing, I've always tried to look for the glimmers of hope, the potential ways in which things could align if, you know, this comes together with this, that we could see a horizon. You know, otherwise you, you give up. I lived through 15 years of civil war. And if you give up on hope, then, you know, you might just as well um, leave the region or, you know, anyway. But for the United States, I think um, there's there's a lot riding, uh, there's a lot to lose, there's a lot to, to win. And I think that despite a lot of the criticism that the administration is getting from uh, the Arab American community and certainly from people in the region who are just beyond outraged that there wasn't an immediate call for a ceasefire, um, I think the Biden administration is navigating this as well as you could. That was Kim Katas, a journalist based in Beirut, and Stephen Cook, a Middle East analyst at the Council for Foreign Relations and an FP columnist. As you heard Kim say, how the Biden administration will juggle conflicts across two continents as it heads into an election year could have reverberations across the world. But to hear more about how the Biden administration was weighing all of this, I spoke to former CIA director, General David Petraeus, in mid-October. Putin, I'm sure, is pleased to see this development, as are other potential adversaries and actual adversaries around the world. It might preoccupy the U.S. and the West. Um, he might hope that it will divert supplies that otherwise would have gone to Ukraine. He may hope that those on Capitol Hill will think that it's mutually exclusive to continue to support Ukraine and also to add uh, new support for Israel. I don't believe it is. I believe the U.S., in fact, is uniquely responsible for keeping more plates spinning, if you will, to use the uh, metaphorical image of the guy in the circus tent who gets a plate on a stick. In fact, I would contend that there are more plates that we have to keep spinning right now, and they're more complex than at any time, at least since the end of the Cold War, if not World War II. But we can do this. Uh, this is possible. We can also, by the way, provide additional resources for the southern border, uh, for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and, and for Taiwan, for that matter. Package all of that together. We can do that, uh, and the, there's not the opportunity cost uh, that is there. But again, any opportunity that they can, they're going to take, and the Iranians will be right there with them in trying to do the same thing. So let me ask you this, uh, General. A lot of analysts have invoked 9-11. Worse uh, than 9-11. I mean, again, we have to really appreciate that this is, we lost nearly 3,000 uh, innocent civilians in the attacks on 9-11 per capita given that Israel's now lost 1,300 and the accounting is still going on, sure. um, this would be the equivalent of way over 40,000 Americans lost. And of course, it's the single worst loss 
uh, for Israelis, for Jews, since the Holocaust. It, it really is. And it's it's just awful. But I, what I want to ask you, when you invoke 9-11, and 9-11 was pivotal for America in so many senses, but it led to, you know, a war on terror for the yeah. better part of two decades yeah. that yeah. had impacts on American yeah. standing around the world. Yeah. No, there's and, a cautionary tale here. And again, we carried out enhanced interrogation techniques because we felt right. that strategic ticking time bomb scenario. And and again, these lessons should be in the front of the minds of the Israeli decision makers and the Israeli military and the intelligence community. They should recognize that we took actions that we look back on later on and, you know, wince a bit and said, perhaps we would like to have a redo of that. So this, again, quest for vengeance has to be measured. It has to be thoughtful. It's necessary. There should be vengeance. It, what took place was horrific, but that needs to be done in a very thoughtful way with a vision that lays out what the future will be more than just having destroyed Hamas as a military organization, also the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, by the way, another five or more thousand uh, terrorists, and leave. And do you think America has leverage to pass on that message and that lesson from 9-11 that you're describing? I think we do. I think other leaders in the world do. And frankly, I'm quite confident that within the uh, Israeli policy-making circles, there are those who will have those lessons in the forefront of their mind as well. And that was General David Petraeus speaking to me in October. I wonder if he still feels the same way now that the death toll in Gaza has risen as dramatically as it has. Aaron David Miller is one of the most storied Middle East negotiators America has ever produced. I spoke to him back in October about the 9-11 analogy as well. But what struck me the most in our conversation was how we've gotten to this point in large part because of a failure of diplomacy, a failure to imagine peace. Listen in. It's morally or ethically unconscionable for me to say never, to think never, and essentially to abandon all hope that any crisis, no matter how hot, uh, irrepressible, violent, and bloody, uh, might not over time offer up a pathway out. Right now, Israelis and Palestinians are trapped in a strategic cul-de-sac. They've been trapped there, frankly, since, in my judgment, since our effort during the Clinton administration to bring Arafat, Barack, and Clinton together at Camp David. In my judgment, uh, I helped plan that ill-advised, ill-conceived, and ill-timed, despite the, I think, the profoundly good intentions of Bill Clinton, who may have loved Israelis and Palestinians too much. Um, however this ends, the four missing ingredients, in my judgment, to create a negotiation that would end to end in a durable and equitable solution for Israelis and Palestinians have never been present. They're not present now. And given what you and I know, we're not dealing with a galaxy far, far away. We're dealing here life on planet Earth are not likely to be present going forward 
in the immediate future. But the four remain critically important. One, leaders who are masters, not prisoners of their ideologies and their politics. Critically important anytime there was progress in this conflict, whether it was Sadat Begin, Rabin Arafat, Rabin Hussein, you needed that. I'm not talking about the Abraham Accords now. I'm talking about conflict zone uh, requirements and conflicts, conflicts that have been bathed in blood and trauma and historical wounding. You need leaders, big leaders. We don't have them. Number two, you need leadership. You also need a sense of ownership. That famous expression in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car, is a profound piece of personal philosophy. People don't wash rental cars because they care only about what they own. And most every negotiation was preceded without the participation of the United States, whether it was Egypt-Israel, Israel-Jordan for decades, and certainly Oslo in its initial stages. You don't have that sense of ownership now. Ownership is driven by pain, Ravi, and it's driven by the prospects of gain. Could this conflict produce both? Because both, both, I suspect, are necessary to create the kind of urgency that's required. Three, you need effective mediation, if not by the United States, and I still believe despite our transgressions, our flaws, uh, our biases, uh, our preferential treatments of one side rather than the other, we still have potentially the will and the skill to do this, but the will is extremely important. You're gonna have to apply a lot of honey both on the negotiating table and in terms of off the table benefits, but you also are gonna to need to apply a lot of vinegar at moments when parties need to be pushed and pressed to make decisions. And finally, you need an end state that both Israelis and Palestinians can agree on. I know what the conventional wisdom is. The two-state solution has gone the way of the dodo. It's virtually impossible to resurrect it. But I would still submit to you, and I maybe I'm going the way of the dodo as well, that separation through negotiation is the only solution, the only one that will address the demographic, political, psychological, historical problem of overlapping sacred space that exists in Jerusalem on the uh, Haram Sharif Harabite, the Temple Mount. The only solution that can address all of that is something, call it a confederation, call it two states, separation through negotiation, two polities willing to live with one another in peace and security. And that was Aaron David Miller, a Middle East analyst and senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you for listening this far. I know this was a longer episode than usual, but we all thought it would be useful to compile all of these different voices, Israeli, American, Palestinian, and put them in one place. Some final reflections. It's clear to me that US foreign policy has begun to shift in recent weeks. Washington is pushing Israel to step back, to consider the scale of human damage in Gaza, to pay a bit more attention to the global mood, Vengeance is in the policy, after all. But the question remains whether America can actually use its leverage over Israel, and whether Israel itself, which remember, is hardly monolithic, and where Netanyahu himself is quite unpopular, whether Israel itself 
can pause and come up with more of a plan for the future, a plan that goes beyond a security state. All of this is easier said than done. And as listeners of FP Live know all too well, the world has so many other problems beyond the Middle East as well. All of that requires not just America as a policeman, but also a better multilateral system, an actual rules-based order, and making sure that leaders don't feel a sense of impunity. The chicken and egg here, of course, is that maybe you need America to reinvest in that very system. Remember, you can also watch these conversations live if you are a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can see who we have coming up next on our website. We have lots of exciting conversations in the week ahead. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. The executive producer of FP Live in video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time.